Well, if you would, turn in your worship guide or your Bible or your Bible app to Genesis 3. We're going to start in verse 8. Or if you just like to listen, that's wonderful too. Uh, actually, what we have printed is starts with verse 8, and that's what we'll focus on, 8 through the rest of the chapter. But for the sake of context, I'll just read the whole thing, okay? Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But the Lord did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all in all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and you ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. And it will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, a man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. 
He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you now. Uh, We want to consider this sobering passage of scripture. Lord, we ask that you would open uh, the eyes and ears of our understanding, that we would read and hear and see what you have here. Lord, as we make our way through this story, which sets the tone for the kind of life in the world that we have experienced. And as we make our way through this story that has been told a million different ways, very, very often to serve a twisted agenda, would you uh, do what it says in Psalm 43, send out your light and your truth. Lord, we need to see the light of Christ here in this text. He is our only hope. We want to rest on his bosom. We want to receive your promise. So in all these things, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Well, slow hike through Genesis 1 through 3, and uh, last week we came to chapter 3, which is the story of the fall, uh, second worst day in the history of all of humanity. The first worst day was the day that uh, our Lord was crucified. This would be the second worst day. Um, this passage is heavy. We, we sat in this last week, and it's uh, this, is, this is no kid's story. Uh, this is this is a horror story. Uh, but in this story, we see this glimmer of hope. And we began to see that last week. And today we'll see it again, even though we can't separate that hope from the, from the darkness that comes alongside it here. It's good for us to be honest about this passage. It's good for us to be honest about ourselves, the human condition. As we've talked about many times, the opening section of uh, the, the famous um, Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, the first thing that Calvin claims is that we can't know God unless we know ourselves. And we can't know ourselves really without knowing God. So here in this text, that's the hope. This text tells us about who God is. And this text also tells us the the nasty, hard truth about who we are, what kind of world, what kind of environment, what kind of family we were born into. It also shows us what Jesus is redeeming. So as we look in this text, my heart is that we will be honest about ourselves, about the Lord, and that we will honestly see Jesus and rejoice in him. The focus last time, we went through those first seven or eight verses where uh, that's when the serpent was 
was talking to the woman, and that's when the man and woman ate. We learned that sin is primarily about God, not about us. We learned that it comes in different shapes and sizes. We saw that the woman was deceived, but we saw that the man was deliberate. Sin comes in different shapes and sizes. We learned that sin and shame come together. And we learned that you can't, no sin is strong enough to keep God away. Today, we're continuing here, looking at what happened at the latter part of the story. After God had come to find the man and the woman, what is it that he had to say to them? What is it that they had to say to God? And what do we need to learn from this passage? Well, like a lot of these passages, um, you know, we could we could be in this for weeks and weeks and weeks and not mine every treasure that's in this text. So there's a lot we have to leave on the table. So I, I want to at least point out uh, three things that we see here that are essential that we must see in this passage. Um, and actually, they're together listed in your worship guide as the, um, if I got this right on Wednesday, and I put it in the spreadsheet. It should be that these three things are, the, there it is. They're the title of the sermon. Three things that we need to get. So if you're a sermon note taker, one, two, three, you're already done taking notes right there. Uh, three things that we need to see here. Exile, curse, and promise. It's three things that's included in this text. I, I want to spend a little bit of time with each of those and look at them. Look at them and what do they tell us about ourselves? What do they tell us about God? What do they tell us about Jesus? So first, exile. This is a story about exile. Exile. Sin separates us from God. That's what happens in this story. It starts out with Adam and the woman hiding. God comes looking. They have a hard conversation. And then at the end, the man and woman are banished. Banished from the garden. And the language is strong. It wasn't like God just said, okay, now it's time for you to go. It says that, uh, speaking, he, he speaks about the man here. And it's, it's not that the woman wasn't involved. He's speaking about the man in his office. Remember we talked about how Adam here wasn't just a dude wasn't just a husband. He held this special high priestly office that only two people in the whole Bible have ever held, Adam and Jesus, where he represents all of humanity. In this sense, we read this. God says the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him, that's banishing all of humanity, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed him on the east side of the Garden of Eden. He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is ultimate exile. Part of the exile is... We, we can argue that the whole thing is self-imposed. I mean, Adam chose deliberately to eat from the fruit. And then he and the woman chose deliberately to hide themselves from God. 
So part of it, yeah, is self-imposed, but part of it is God-imposed. God's the one that said, you have to leave this garden. Remember that the garden was like a temple? That was the place where God had made to commune with human beings. I remember God had given Adam as the high priest of all humanity a test, one act of obedience, and then you can eat from the tree of life, and all you guys can join me in my Sabbath rest. Remember that? And Adam rebelled. So what God is saying is not just you have to get out of here. It's you have to get out of here because if you eat from this other tree, you will live forever in this terrible, shameful estate. So you got to go. That's merciful on God's part. This is a merciful exile. But another part of it is judgment. Telling Adam, no more communion like we had planned. You have to leave the temple. Sin separates us from God. There is no such thing as loving God and refusing to keep his commands. In fact, Jesus said directly, if you love me, you will obey my commands. This is fundamental to understand the rest of scripture. The starting point for the human story is being created man and woman together, bearing the image of God, living in this mutual fellowship together with the Lord, the Lord's presence there before him in his temple. It's this beautiful thing. That's what it means to be human. But in sin, true humanity is put aside. Self-imposed and God-imposed in judgment and in mercy, exile. This applies to every single one of us. Every single one of us is a son or daughter of Adam. He represented all of us there, which means that we were born into this exile. Which means that we are born enemies. Which means that we are born broken. Exile, sin separates us from God. Here's the other thing. Curse. Sin brings curses on our relationships. Sin brings curses on our relationships. Look at verse 10. The, the, God had said to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Sin breaks our relationship with ourselves. That's one relationship that's cursed. Sin brings curses in our relationships. Which relationships? Well, primarily our relationship with ourselves. This is what we talked about last week. Sin and shame come together. Guilt is the little voice that says you did something wrong. Shame is a little voice that says, you are something wrong. And Adam says, I hid because we were naked. I love that God says, who told you you were naked? And the answer is, nobody. Adam's relationship with his with himself, him and the woman together, they, they could no longer view themselves as who they were created to be, these image-bearing, beautiful people. 
They tried to cover and hide. So sin brings curses in our relationships, our relationship with ourselves, but also with our relationships with one another. In this text, this is illustrated and shown in in the description of how the relationship between the man and the woman was broken. This is something that we've talked quite a lot about throughout this series. What is, how do, what's God's plan for men and women in the world? And we saw chapter one, created in God's image, male and female together. We saw in chapter two, God created man from the dust of the ground and brought the woman from his side, his equal. She's the image of the image, the glory of the glory. And then here we see in chapter three, this Beautiful fellowship between man and woman is broken. God says, oh, uh, God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? I commanded you not to eat from. And the man said, the woman, <laughs> the woman you, you put here with me. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. Adam immediately starts pointing blame at the woman. No hesitation. And then we see as we look down, God speaks to the snake and then he speaks to the woman. And he says, I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe, painful labor. You'll give birth to children. Here we see the pain in the fundamental relationships of family. And then we see this verse. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Based on what we've learned so far in this text about a man and a woman, how God created them together in his image, this verse should sting. This is, this is dark. Now, let me tell you what's going on here. God is, it's like a prophecy. God is saying, because of what you have done, this is what it's going to be like now. This is a prophecy, not a prescription. There are various streams of thought that teach. Uh, I learned this early on because the woman did the dumb thing because she stepped out there and she ate the fruit and then she made Adam do it. Now God is saying that he needs to put her in her place. Nothing could be farther from the truth with this verse. We saw last week that Adam was the greater sinner. We saw last week that Adam is the high priest of all humanity. Adam was the one who received the command. As Paul says in 1 Timothy, she was deceived. She was tricked, but he wasn't. So it can't be that she did something bad, and so now she's being put in her place. No, it's not that at all. After the man had blamed the woman for his sin, God says, It's like God is saying, guys, I love you. Unfortunately, this is what you brought down on yourselves. She's going to desire you. Now, that might be a righteous desire. It might be an unrighteous desire. The sad thing is to Adam, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how she feels to him. He's going to rule. This is where we see in the scriptures, this is the first time we ever see any hint of male hierarchy in the scriptures. Right here. 
The most basic fundamental relationship in the family, in society, and in church, the relationship between man and woman is broken. That means it brings a curse into our families, our churches, and our society. A curse of the subordination and the subjection of women. Now, this is something we have talked about quite a bit. And we might be asking, why are we talking about this so much? And the answer is twofold. Number one, because it's in the text. And number two, reflecting on that. This truth of how God created men and women together, the shared, mutual, equal fellowship, image-bearing before the Lord, is broken and bent here. When sin enters the picture. The problem of men dominating over women is something that the Bible introduces right at the beginning as a fundamental and primary consequence of sin. As a curse for all of humanity. Which means that this is a primary issue in our Bibles. In our culture, this has become a political issue. Or it has become, you know, um, a conservative liberal issue theologically. Forget all of that. In Bible, this is primary and fundamental to our actual humanity. So we are going to talk about it every time it comes up in the text because it is of primary importance. Here's another reason. This is a curse that we carry. This is about us. This year, a report came out from a study committee commissioned by our denomination's General Assembly. That was a project that had been in the works for several years, a study committee report on abuse in the church. This was conducted by teaching and ruling elders along with um, uh, counselors, psychologists, Professionals in the social sciences, men and women together worked on this. Here's one of the things that they found. Let me read this word for word from this report. At least 10 million men and women suffer from domestic abuse each day. 10 million every day. As many as 20 people are assaulted by their partners every minute. Up to 85% of the victims of domestic abuse are women and young girls, while 2% are men. 85% are women and girls, only 2% are. Do you see the slant? Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Uh, 137 women are killed each day. By acts of familial violence, 137 women killed by acts of family violence. And here's the kicker. Statistically, there is zero difference between the general and the Christian population. Abusers exist in pulpits, pews, seminaries, and on the boards and committees of every denomination, including the Presbyterian Church in America. Folks, we have, we carry a curse.
Folks, any belief, system, doctrine that gives the green light for men to dominate women does not come from God. It comes from sin. And it is a curse on all of humanity. And it is a curse that Jesus has come to undo. Let's move on. Sin breaks, curses our relationships with ourselves, our relationships with one another, and our relationship with our environment. Look at verse 17. He tells Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It used to be every tree in the garden produced fruit for you. Now only the ground and only when you toil painfully. And not just fruit, also thorn, uh, verse 18, it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, from dust, and to dust you will return. God is saying that part of this curse is our relationship with our environment, with the earth, is broken, and the earth is going to win. (laughs) Do you see here? Every relationship is cursed, following the breaking of our relationship with God. Relationship with God is broken by sin, which results in every other relationship being cursed and twisted and broken. You see it. So this is where the passage leaves us. Exile, curse. But then there's this promise piece. It doesn't end with darkness. In fact, God never does. This speaks to the character of God. Even in this moment of judgment, we see mercy. In this moment of judgment, we see a promise of redemption. In fact, we see two of them. This is where God begins to initiate, right here on day one of fallen world, God begins to inaugurate and bring in uh, his administration of grace, his covenant of grace. In fact, we never see God do judgment separated from grace. And everything God does, he does out of love. So we've, we've looked at the dark part. We stared it in the face, and it condemns us. Now, let's look to the promise and see what God is going to do about our predicament that we ourselves have created. First, there is a promise of victory. Promise of victory. Look at verse 15. God starts out, he's talking to the serpent, and he says this famous thing that has echoed throughout history. This this verse has been called the Proto-Euangelion, which is New Testament Greek for first gospel. God says this to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, the first time I heard that that was the first gospel statement, I said, what? Because I don't really, that seems confusing. What, what God, what is that about? Let's slow it down. He says to the serpent, which as we learned is the devil, the accuser, the enemy. He says, I will put enmity. Enmity is, means a state of being enemies. 
I will put enmity, eneminess, between you and the woman. Okay, let's stop. God says, I'm going to make you and the woman enemies. That's important because in this moment, the serpent and the woman, remember, they had become allies. They had become friends. Remember when things started out, man and woman had fellowship with God. And then the woman talks to the serpent, does what he wanted her to do. And now now she's no longer on God's side. She's on the serpent's side. So God comes to the serpent, serpent and he says, going forward, I'm going to establish her as your enemy. What God is saying is, I'm going to switch back the teams. Do you see it? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And then he, who's he? The offspring. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What God is saying is, I'm going to make you guys enemies again. And that's going to happen because the offspring of the woman eventually is going to crush you. Now, this is about Jesus. Here, Eve is shown to be the mother of Jesus, the one who is going to come and make the evil one, the accuser, the adversary, uh, the serpent, make him enemies with humanity again, which means making humanity Friends with God again. Do you see it? So this is saying that Eve, the woman, the one who's going to be dominated, she's the mother of Jesus. It also means that Eve is being designated here as the mother of the people of God. Remember how Adam wasn't just a dude. He was this high priest who represents all of humanity. Well, here Eve is named as a representative. Or I should say the woman because she hasn't been named yet. As a representative for the people of God. We will see beginning next week that the offspring of the woman throughout history is going to grow into a people who will stand against the accuser in the world. And those people, the people of Israel, will bring us Jesus, the son of the woman. And he's going to crush the serpent's head. Folks, this is beautiful. This is, God is, I love that God introduces the gospel here and he introduces it through the woman. Especially right next to that statement about her being dominated. That's on purpose. Jesus is coming. He's going to undo the curse. He's going to make us enemies with the devil again, which means restoring fellowship between us and God. This means that he's going to undo the brokenness that we experience with the environment. He's going to undo the brokenness between the relationships between men and women. He is going to undo the shame that keeps us bound up in ourselves instead of living freely and open before God. Jesus is going to do that. And he tells Eve, he shows Eve and Adam, this is going to take time. And it's going to be hard. Your offspring, but childbearing will be painful. 
So we see that victory is coming. We get to look back and see the victory has already come. But they were looking forward. So two promises, I told you. Promise of victory, and here's the next one. And this one is just, I I hope this one uh, lands with you the way it landed with me. This, This brought me to a place of awe, looking at God's goodness here. Promise of victory, the offspring is coming. Second, uh, a promise of covering. Look at verse 21. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, nope, that's the wrong chapter. That's verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Let's just dig into that for a second. Remember that Adam and the woman had already clothed themselves with leaves, which is supposed to be ironic because they sinned by taking fruit from a tree, and then they covered themselves with pieces of a tree. They're trying to cover themselves with something that represents their rebellion. And then we see that again here. And Adam says, oh, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Right. But so that now God comes in and now he clothes them with something else. Now, and it, and it lasts. And here's kind of the lesson. When we try to cover our own shame, it doesn't last. But when we let God cover our shame, that sets us free. Also, he covers them with skins, which means that something had to die. Some animal had to die. And remember, Moses was writing this for the people of Israel. This was about the time they were also getting all the commands about sacrifices and all that stuff. And they would have gone, oh, yeah. They probably would have thought, and I think rightly, a lamb had to die. We don't know what kind of animal it was, but it was a substitutionary death. So they're covered Their shame is covered. They're covered by the death of a substitute. Remember, the consequences for sin was you're going to have to die. And they didn't die right away, but something else did. So they're covered. Their shame is covered by God. Their ticket for death is postponed by a substitute. They're covered by the substitute's skins. That itself is significant. They are covered by skin. And that seems a little gross just talking about it, but think of it. They're covered with a new kind of nakedness. They were created naked, showing the beautiful image of God. They rebelled. They tried to cover the image on their bodies. And now God comes along, recovers them, covering their shame. And it's a new kind of nakedness, which means now they stand with nothing to hide and no reminders of the tree that they ate from only a reminder of a lamb and of course it looks forward to the death of Jesus the lamb of God who covers his people with his perfect righteousness who died in our place and who went to the cross scorning its shame so that we could live shame free this is the this is the covering for the people of God. This is the victory for the people of God. So we look at the curse that we have brought down on our heads 
separated from God, separated from one another, introducing domination and fear as means for trying to be whoever it is we're trying to be, a broken relationship with the earth. These are things we know very well in our world today. They live in our churches, they live in our homes, and they live in our hearts. We have that, and we've looked straight into it. But now turn your eyes and look at the promise. In Christ, death has lost its sting. In Christ, the adversary has been defeated. In Christ, the image is being restored. As we talked about weeks ago, in Christ, women are being liberated. In Christ, men are learning how to bear the image in a way that looks more like Jesus than looks like whatever we've created in our world than we've called it masculine, which is usually a distortion when it doesn't look like Christ, the servant. He comes to make all things new. So as we look back and we examine this text, we should rejoice with joy that Jesus, the new Adam, has come, not just to set us free, but to reorder everything. Not to restore what was lost, but to restore what was lost into something even greater than we read before, a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation, a new society, a new openness for the world and God. Together. So I want to end asking the same question we we asked weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks ago, and we've asked a few times since then. This should leave us asking, am I in Adam or am I in Christ? Which one of these plans for the world am I trusting in, living into, do I find myself? Have you been covered? Have you been covered by the skin? Of the lamb. Are you still hiding? And then as a church. Is the kind of promise of victory. And covering. Dare we say liberation. And newness. Is this the message that we proclaim to the world? Or are we so caught up in the curse. That we don't know anything different. I invite you brothers and sisters. Like we sang earlier uh, from Lion Willie Davis. Congregation, when the world is on fire, don't you want God's bosom to be your pillow? To call on him to hide us over in the rock of ages. The rock of ages, Jesus Christ, cleft for me.